Well, good to see you all again tonight. I'm sorry it's cold this evening. I'll try to keep it warm for you next time. So uh, let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we are continually amazed by your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ that you would look upon us unworthy men and women and call us out of a mass of perdition unto your glorious and amazing kingdom, the kingdom that you have brought in your Son through his death and resurrection, delivered us from your wrath, and brought us to the greatest love and grace imaginable. And Father, you would, uh, we ask that you would help us this evening as we contemplate the riches of eternity in your word through Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, this evening, we are moving on. We are moving on to another chapter in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. We won't forget Galatians chapter 2 entirely, because there's going to be some connections between 3 and 2. But I want to give us a little bit of a reminder of what we have seen so far, Uh so that we can see its connection with what we're going to see in chapter 3. We have seen all the way from chapter 1 that God uh, manifests himself to Paul on the road to Damascus as the Son of God and conformed him unto the Son of God to be apostle to Jew and Gentile alike, therefore conforming him as Son in a new way in a new way in the history of redemption, a son of God who accepts Jews and Gentiles alike, a son of God who reveals a fuller sonship to his people, the son giving us greater sonship in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we saw in chapter 2 how that was worked out in the narrative, how it was when Peter sought to go back to the old order of things in the history of redemption by uh, involving himself in the Jewish food laws that Paul rebuked him. In other words, the life of the Son of God rebuked him and said, come up higher, Peter. Come to the new age that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then Paul spoke of himself as having identified with this Christ in the fullness of the end of the ages. Christ has now already in redemptive history been crucified. And now I live in him. I live unto God. I live in the fullness of the end of the ages, in the riches of the grace and love of God now manifest. God's love so great to us that he has made us participants in the age to come. In his son. And now, what Paul is going to do is he's going to seek to draw the Galatians into that story even more by directly addressing them and rebuking them for failing to recognize that that our Lord Jesus Christ has now already been crucified for their failure to recognize that the age of the Spirit has come by grace alone. 
not by the works of the law, but by the work of his son. And to draw them into that and to have it affect their faith and their life in Christ. And so when we think uh, about this, uh, we think about how the previous narrative looked at this dynamic contrast between the ages speaking about a gospel that was not according to man, but according to Christ. And in effect, I'm going to suggest then it's not according to the works of the law, not the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Okay, so that this contrast here that he's introduced in chapter 2, verse 15, then plays out with that contrast that he has uh, expressed uh, earlier. Because that which is according to man is ultimately according to works, according to our engagement, our works the works of man ultimately to seek to bring in that which is their highest goal, that which is their glory, the glory of man. Contrasted to what Christ has brought through his death and resurrection, the age to come, an age in which God is centered. God is central. You see, in this eschatology, God is the center of things, not man. And he has brought it by his grace, and therefore faith, trust in Christ. Union with him is the only way. And so, in a sense, I also suggested, uh, therefore, that as we see this narrative, you see this contrast between that which is according to Christ and that which is according to man, is even represented, relatively speaking, in any desire to return to the Jewish theocratic uh, land and promise. Okay, any desire, uh, such as the one Peter expressed, to return to Jewish rituals of the Old Testament, to turn to the law as a means of delivering oneself from the curses that might come upon one, to bring in some sort of righteousness, the desire to make this thing by which. Uh, Israel lived in the land and gained promises and blessings in the land to absolutize that, to make it an end in itself, to make this world an end in itself, and that's what the Judaizers are doing when they completely make this the absolute. And Paul opposes that to Christ. So we have a relative contrast in the history of redemption going on as well. And Paul is going to now express that by the themes of sonship, once again, and by the life in the Spirit. Okay. He's going to talk about sonship. We've seen Christ revealed as the Son of God, and now we're going to continue to see the theme of sons. Right? If, Paul, uh, if, God, if Christ revealed himself to, to Paul on the road to Damascus as the Son of God, revealed in him, and he speaks in chapter 2 about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, He is now going to speak about us as sons, as sons in a new way. So he's going to draw us into this story and say we have an even fuller sonship 
than Israel of old, even of the saints of old. Our sonship certainly is united to theirs, both by grace through faith, and yet we have a fuller participation in that sonship now that Christ has come. So let's look at a few uh, passages in uh, chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians to kind of get a broader understanding of this broader theme uh, of sonship. And first of all, one that's in our text for this evening, which is going to be uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, is verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So this becomes uh, one of his conclusions and uh, main uh, theses to demonstrate. Then uh, you come to the end uh, of chapter 3, and I'm going to suggest we have a similar theme. Uh, We have the theme of being an heir. It is a son who is an heir. Okay. And so look at uh, 329. Someone want to read that for us? And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay. Uh, I'm going to suggest that 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 helps continue the discussion through uh, of sonship and Abraham to 329 to being an heir as a son, as an heir. But then uh, we can look at that connection that uh, Paul makes between sonship and heirs in 4.7. He makes that connection explicit. Someone read verse 7 of chapter 4 for us, please. Therefore you are no longer slave, but a son, and if a son than an heir through God. Okay. So there again, sonship. But he doesn't give up this theme. He continues it on through chapter 4 to verses 29 to 30. And uh, actually we can... Begin the chapter and verse 28 would be fine. Somebody want to go from 28 to 30? Uh, 31, 28 to 31. The new brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bond woman and her son, for the son of the bond woman shall not be an heir as the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bond woman, but of the free woman. Okay, so you see how he makes the quotation of being a son in verse 30, right? And he puts that together with being children, children of promise. And there's something else interesting that he does in that verse. He connects being a child of God being born of what? Spirit. Being born of the Spirit. Okay. And that's interesting because at the end of chapter 4, he's going to speak of sonship 
and the spirit. Uh, and what happens is when we're, we begin chapter 3, 3, 1, 2, 3, we begin to read interesting words about the spirit, questions about the spirit. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This one thing I want to find out from you, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that as those who are of faith, who are sons of Abraham. Paul is asking whether they've received the spirit by faith or the works of the law, right? And then he concludes that with, therefore, be sure that as those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. He's got a connection there between the spirit and being sons. So he has that connection at the beginning of chapter 3 and the end of chapter 4. And it's interesting. It's interesting to think about this and how this might fit in with what we have already seen so far. Because what we've already seen so far is a new sonship, right? A fuller sonship in the history of redemption. And it is true, Paul is looking back at the patriarchal period, and he is seeing that there is a son there. So he is seeing a correspondence between us and the prior history of redemption. So this chapter does make a continuity between the two of us but then speaks of a greater sonship in the new. Greater sonship in the new. And with that, a greater gift of the Spirit in the new economy. You see, you're born of the Spirit. If the Spirit comes down upon God's people in a new way at the day of Pentecost, is there not a fuller possession of being sons of God as a result? You see, and that, I believe, is the question Paul is asking here. You see, did you receive the Spirit in the fullness of the times, the fullness of the times that have come now in Christ? The Spirit is given in greater measure now. This is what Gerhardus Voss calls the eschatological gift of the Spirit. And though it's his hardest article maybe to read, uh, go on the eschatological aspect of the Spirit in Paul, which is very interesting. Uh, if you want, we have a class where we go through it. Sometime you could audit that. You might enjoy it. But here he is trying, I believe, focusing on that, the gift of the Spirit in the fullness of the times. And he's connected that with the greater sonship. So he's saying, have you received the fullness of the gift of the Spirit now by means of the works of the law or by faith? And it's interesting that when you come to 3.14, which is at the end of our little section here, you have Paul actually thinking of the Spirit as being given in a specific point in the history of redemption. You see, 
verses 13 and 14. Someone want to read that for us? Right. Christ, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay. In other words, he's talking somewhat historically here, isn't he? After Christ bore the curse of law in history, he did that in order that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's a historical reality, is it not? The blessing of Abraham now coming to the Gentiles? Isn't that what Paul is now uh, brought into as an apostle to the Gentiles? In his union with the Son of God, he specially reveals the fullness of the gospel being given to the Gentiles. And so when Paul speaks here of Christ bearing the curse, and now... Uh, doing that so that the Gentiles might come in. He's speaking historically, isn't he? And therefore, the concluding phrase, in order that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, is also historical. It has a historical vector that we may now, in the fullness of the time, receive the spirit in greater measure. So he is speaking about the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit in these times. Yes. Paul uses uh, in him extensively in his epistles, mm-hmm. and I take that to mean that we are in union with Christ. The Old Testament saint was such a person in union with Christ? Could we say that the Old Testament saint was in him? And the receiving of the Spirit, we are each engulfed by the Holy Spirit. Can that be said of the Old Testament saint? Yes, I think both can be said of the Old Testament saint. Uh, the Old Testament saint was in union with Christ in anticipation of the full coming of Christ. Right? And the Old Testament saint was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? How else does one believe and trust in Christ to come apart from the Holy Spirit? Right? Uh, it is only by the work in the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we actually are regenerated and we come to faith. So, no Old Testament Arminians or Pelagians. Okay. But I'm suggesting to you that Paul is then, even though he implies even what you're saying here in this text, he is also suggesting a greater fullness of union with Christ, a greater union, and a greater participation in the Spirit. Now, Uh, I haven't fully demonstrated that yet, Um, but uh, there are some texts in here which we'll look at, um, and some of those are the texts that go from the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of 4, you see, where uh, 
let's look at 4.1, for instance. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, uh, born of a woman, born under law, in order that he might redeem those who were under law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out the Father. Now, it suggests to you that what you've got going on here uh, is in chapter 4, uh, verse, first three verses, you have those who are heirs, but they're also uh, slaves. You have a situation uh, where I believe that Paul is primarily focusing here on Israel, and that she is an heir, that she is heirs, but also slaves. And I'm going to suggest to you the way I reconcile this is by making this diagram that distinguishes the visible church from the invisible church. Once again, okay. So that in terms of the manifestation of the visible church, the curses of the law, and that's what I'm drawing these lines for, mixed curses and blessing, uh, the curses of the law were visibly upon all the Old Testament people of God. For those who did not truly trust in Christ, these were genuine curses. But for those who did trust in Christ to come, these curses that they experienced in the land were shielded from them by the justifying verdict of Christ upon them. So they were only visible curses. They were only shadows of things to come. And this, I would suggest, is bondage, relatively speaking, to the elementary principles of this world, insofar as the land and uh, of Israel is still a matter, to some degree, of the elemental things of this world. But, of course, these are true heirs, who are the elect, true heirs, and as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ from a slave in some respects, but when the fullness of the time comes, all the people of God participate in the fullness of the blessing. So they are no longer under curse. And that's what we see happening to uh, saints at the transitional period in the history of redemption uh, with uh, people uh, like um, the disciples. Uh, so the disciples and, and others at the day of Pentecost who are called a pious group as a whole. The group is pious, so there's genuine converted, genuinely converted people in that group at the day of Pentecost by the Old Testament standards, but in the New Testament age, they received a fuller outworking of the Spirit. And I would say they are no longer under the curse of the law in this respect. So the heir, now he inherits all things in all respects. That which was true of him truly is now manifest in the fullness of his covenant inheritance. That is, the life of being a son an heir, and he participates even more fully now at this period of the history of redemption uh, in the blessings of the kingdom of God. Okay, well, let's, um, let's look at uh, another passage in Paul uh, where we have um, this aspect of the spirit being a down payment of the age to come. 
And we'll be looking in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Someone read that for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Okay. Notice Paul talks about the Spirit given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, uh, many good people have worked on this text and uh, suggested to us, like Dr. Richard Gaffin has suggested to us, that Paul, when he's talking about a pledge here, when he's talking about the Spirit as a pledge, we have to think about the pledge of the future inheritance. Okay? And you might want to think about two different types of pledges that you might get. If you're, let's say that, uh, you know, your, your, uh, uh, your grandmother uh, is, is putting you in her will. Okay? And she, she could have a couple of different ways of promising to give you, let's say, $3,000. All right? Uh, she's got $3,000 in gold bullion. And one pledge that she might give you is a piece of paper that says, besides the will, you get this piece of paper that says, I pledge to you such and such $3,000 in gold bullion. Another kind of pledge, though, would that she actually gives you some of the gold bullion. Look, I'm going to give you not, not just a promissory note, but I'm going to give you some of the gold bullion as a kind of down payment. I'm going to give you some of the substance of what you will have at the end of the, when I die, now. Okay. And I'm suggesting to you that that's the kind of pledge that we have here, that the future blessing of God's people is the inheritance of the Spirit. And God gives us something of the very substance of that inheritance as our pledge, you see. He's given us the Spirit as a pledge of the inheritance. Yes? So, this wasn't given to the Old Testament saint then. My, my question, I'm not trying to no, that's right, paint Dave. in a corner. Paul uses language and description and specification that was not employed in the Old Testament. So either this is something new for the New Testament believer, or it just was never revealed or explained in the Old Testament. What I'm going to what I'm going to argue for is a progression going on. Okay, uh, some people have talked about this in terms of like organic progression. You know, for instance, you, you you've got you got a plant and you plant that plant and you got these nice little seedlings. Let's say you have a tomato plant. You know, you want it to bear fruit. Okay, when it when it's when it comes up, can you say it's alive? That's a tomato. Uh, bush? I've forgotten what, what they are. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, you can, right? But is it, is it, is it, is it come to its full blossomage, full fruitage at this point? No. And when it does later on, 
okay, you can say, wow, this, this is the tomato tree, right? or the tomato bush. All right? You can say, this is it. But, but that which, you know, it still was before, but now it's truly come of age. Okay, and, and that's what I'm suggesting to you we have here is the, the blessings of salvation in their very nature and substance are the same between the Old Testament and New Testament saint. Okay, in their very nature. Just like the substance of that tomato plant is the same early on as it is later. But the maturity of that and the greater fullness of the salvation is given in the new economy. I mean, even if, even if uh, uh, you're still wondering about this in Galatians, think about this in the book of Acts, when the Spirit is poured out upon those people. Now, is the Spirit is poured out upon Peter, for instance, right? Now, is Peter a completely wretched unbeliever who is devoid of the Spirit? Okay, I mean, that'd be one option. And, but no, we know he's not, Right? We know that he is a man of genuine faith, even though it is weak faith. And yet the Spirit is poured upon him. So as an Old Testament saint, he has the Spirit, but the Spirit still comes upon him even more so. Um, And I would suggest to you that that's a better alternative and a more biblical one than saying, no, Peter didn't have the Spirit at all. Because that'd be the other alternative, right? Peter just was devoid of the Spirit. Old Testament saints didn't have the Spirit. And now, somehow, in the New Testament, they get the Spirit for the first time. Right? But I don't think that works. Okay. Because uh, not only do we have the work of the Spirit represented in the Old Testament saints, in the Old Testament itself, but... Even if you were to push and say, oh, but that's just talking about the visible manifestation of the Spirit. Okay? Just a visible manifestation of the Spirit. I would say no. Whenever in the Bible you have a visible manifestation of blessing to God's people, all right, any visible manifestation of blessing to God's people, anyone who lays hold of those visible blessings by faith actually participate in the reality and substance that goes beyond them. Or, or is the substance of them. So if David were to speak by the Holy Spirit, okay, you could be a prophet in the Old Testament. Hypothetically, you could speak by the Holy Spirit like Balaam and not be a converted person. All right? But what if David speaks by the Holy Spirit? He does it in faith. And so he lays hold of the substance of the Spirit by faith. He truly possesses the Holy Spirit in his heart. And so, uh, this is one reason I think we can argue, as the Reformed churches have in the past, that Old Testament saints were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Then if we look at things in that light, and then we go to the day of Pentecost and say, somebody who is genuinely converted like Peter, then he receives the Holy Spirit? This must be just a fuller outpouring of that spirit, right? can't be something totally different of a different kind. Well, if you're not fully convinced of that, let it, let it sink for a while, and then you can press me later. How's that? Um, well, let's, let's take a look at um, 
uh, the narrative here. And let's think a little bit about the connection of our chapter, chapter 3 of Galatians, going back to chapter 3 of Galatians, and see how that relates to the narrative that precedes it. Because, you see, I'm trying to suggest to you that the sonship here that, the, that Paul is drawing them into is the sonship at the end of the ages. All right, It's that gospel of a fuller manifestation of grace now in Christ Jesus. So, he's drawing them back into that narrative where that was manifested earlier that we looked at. And there's clearly a connection here uh, between some of the terms and some of the things he's talking about. For instance, you find in Galatians 2, the crucifixion. Chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. There we have the crucifixion. And then, again, in chapter 3, we have the crucifixion. Verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Okay. So we have the crucifixion in both cases. He's drawing them back to the crucifixion by which he was crucified with Christ. And this crucifixion in chapter 1, by which he's crucified with Christ, draws him into the fullness of the arena of the resurrection life. That's the other thing. It's not just the crucifixion, it's the resurrection. Because back in chapter 2, the verse I just read, he says, the life which I live in faith, I live by faith in the Son of God. I now live in faith in the Son of God. Could the Son of God be dead for him to do that? No. He's alive in union with the Son of God. So he's implying that, that the Son of God is alive, right? That the Son of God has been raised from the dead. And that he is living unto the Son of God in the heavenly places, laying hold of him by faith. And so Paul implies the resurrection as well in the first few verses of chapter 3. Because he then says in 3.2... This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? The Spirit here is the glory, the glorious Spirit of the age to come. Paul has just spoken about, wasn't Christ crucified? Hasn't he been betrayed before you was crucified? Then did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or hearing of faith? Implying that... It is by the crucifixion that one receives the Spirit, is it not? By faith. Faith in union with him who must now possess the Spirit, right? Who must now be raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's drawing them now into the story of that previous narrative and his own confession, his own identity in Christ Jesus. And it may be that if this is the case, it may be that this idea of who has bewitched you might just reflect, though the words aren't identical, back on Peter. 
was not Peter bewitched, you see, and taken aside and brought back to the older economy. And now who has bewitched the Galatians? So you can see that we have him drawing them into the history of redemption. And it is interesting that this question about the spirit here is prominent, like I suggested in this section, and it waits to be answered in verse 14, okay, which we've already looked at, which is that the uh, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Through faith, you see, not by works of the law, but through faith. Now, I tried to argue with you last time that Paul, when he is making a contrast by works of the law, one aspect of that contrast is an aspect to the older economy. Okay, by works of the law. That is, by mediated, mediated by Israel's obedience to the law of God, moral, ceremonial, and judicial, she received greater blessing as opposed to curse. She separated herself from the nations. Now, of course, this is all a gift of God's grace because it is God working in her by the Spirit, and it is a result of the justification to the saints. But nonetheless, it is mediated by means of their obedience. Peter wants to go back to that. He wants to go back to ritual law, you see, where he is now thinking in terms of an earthly inheritance, mediated by his obedience to the earthly rituals, okay, of the law. And so Paul is saying the age of the spirit, the fullness of the inheritance does not come that way. It comes by the work of Christ, and therefore, you lay hold of it by faith. It is not by the works of the law. What has the Judaizers tried to do? They try to absolutize this. Then they make this absolute works pure and simple. They make it by the works of the law. Shall the kingdom come? Our obedience to the works of the law. And Paul says, no, it is by faith, by faith in Christ, faith in that Christ has brought the fullness of the inheritance to God's people. Christ has brought the fullness of the age of the Spirit by his work. Well, any questions? That uh, word in the first verse, the public display, Mm -hmm. Do you see that public display is associated with your personal teeth from the old era? And that the public display of Christ, namely the visible uh, lifting up of him by crucifixion, is itself the key to the annulment of that or cancellation of that so that now you're sliding over into the age of the spirit of glorification? 
I, I've seen generally what you're talking about, but you that that the curse motif is here, you see, and then it is later on. But now you're pressing on the visibility of that. You're, is that what you're doing? Yeah, the visibility of the curse that you've outlined in the old era. Uh-huh. I mean, that obviously they perceive those as visible experiences. <clears throat> is the open display of Christ? Hmm in its visibility. I mean, mm-hmm. he seems to be underscoring that here. Yeah. <clears throat> Is that itself part of this cancellation or annulment? You're going to develop this in Cursed as Everyone Who Hangs Upon a Tree later right. on in this right. chapter. So is he kind of keying that here in this first verse? That's an interesting thought, because I haven't thought about that. I, um, I've only been given some, you know, Tear, maybe tears or maybe some thoughts by commentators. One one was that you know maybe he was visibly displayed as crucified when they saw Paul suffering. Uh, one thing I've considered here is that uh, perhaps this is an aspect of seeing. So that before whom they have been visible, you know, displayed as crucified. So it might bring us back to you see those insights that we saw earlier in the narrative where. You know, chapter 2, verse 7, uh, especially uh, 2, 7, and then 2, 9. I think, I think, uh, I think it's 2, 7 that has seeing it. You see, they saw this. And then, and then uh, Paul says when he rebukes Peter in that phrase is in uh, the end of uh, 2, 14 in that rebuke. You see, seeing this. And then he says later in, in 15 or 16, seeing, right? I, you know, we seeing that a man is not justified. Now he may be saying, before whom Christ is displayed to you, and, and you have this insight, and now you've rejected this insight. Uh, but I, I, I think that would be very interesting to put that together with what you're suggesting. Yeah. Well, our section then emphasizes this work of the Spirit and how did you receive the Spirit by the works of the faith or the hearing, uh, excuse me, the works of the law or the hearing of faith? And I've argued here, I'm arguing for a relative contrast in the history of redemption. You see, the way I've argued for it, because I've argued that it is greater grace in the new than in the old. All right? So, in some sense, here the works of the law are seen in their relationship to the old covenant of grace. You see, you know, the new covenant brings something in greater fullness. But then what the Judaizers do is they abstract the works of the law from the covenant of grace because they still try to live in that era after Christ has come, so they abstract it from the heart of grace, because the heart of grace looked to Christ to come when Christ has already come and accomplished his work. If they were believing saints, they would trust in that reality, and they would live out of the fullness of the time. But by showing that they are continuing with a theocratic point of view, they're saying, no, I want this. That's what's important to me, is the substance of the visible reality in the land of Israel. That's what's important to my heart, And therefore, they make that an end in itself, and they therefore abstract the works of the law from the Mosaic Covenant of Grace. They make it an end in itself. And of course, Paul is completely opposed to that as well, right? The fullness of the times in Christ opposes that altogether. I mean, if he's relatively 
saying we're going beyond this old order, when you consider everything in lieu of the covenant of grace manifest in Moses, well then, of course, he's absolutely against anything where you gut it of its grace and you continue on with uh, the visible manifestations of the old covenant. So he's implying both in this text. Now we'll talk a little bit more about that later, how he's, he's opposing the Judaizers. And he's, of course, opposing, he's saying the greater grace in Christ has come to all who are completely under the works of the law. Any Gentile who's under the works, of, and any Gentile that's under curse, absolutely speaking, Christ has redeemed them by his new grace in his death and resurrection. Well, let's, um, let's look a little bit at some of the quotations that Paul uses. But, but before, before I do that, I want to um, bring up one thing here in the, uh, in the uh, middle of our uh, section here. If you look at your handout... I'm looking for mine here. If you look at your handout, I've given you a couple pages at the end, uh, and I want you to look at the um, at the the second the, the page three, which is the first of these maps. I've called them maps. They're basically structural uh, words words that you see repeated uh, in different verses. And I want you to notice at verse 4, if you go along the line to the far right-hand column, you have in vain, in vain. And surrounding that, you have the Spirit. And it's interesting, there, Paul brings in this aspect here of the vanity. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? And you see how verse 4 there, where he's talking about that, is in between uh, verse the, a discussion about the Spirit. okay, On both sides of that, he's asking questions about the Spirit in verses uh, 3 and then again in 5. All right? 2 and 3 and then in 5. So kind of almost in the middle or sandwiched in between there, there's this discussion of vanity. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Well, question is, what is this aspect of suffering and what makes it vain if they go back to the older economy? All right. Now, there may be something here to do with persecution in the book. You remember when Paul describes his former life, he speaks about how he persecuted the church of God. Okay. And then you come to chapter 4 uh, where he discusses the son of the bondwoman and the son of the free woman. And you see verse 29. But at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. And then Paul speaks again of persecution, persecution for the cross of Christ. And he says... Um, in verse uh, 12 of chapter 6, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
Now, then he goes on to describe the contrast between circumcision and the new creation, the old age and the new age. Is Paul suggesting here, you see, that the desire of the Judaizers to bring about a theocratic or, if you will, a visible manifestation of kingdom glory for themselves is a desire to shield themselves from persecution. That their eschatology is oriented to one of blessing in which they will not have to suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And it is interesting that the contrast is different. For Paul, his life is the life in the new creation. And in the life of the new creation, his blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in the fullness of the times. And therefore, his gospel is consistent with the possibility of being persecuted. Because it argues that even if you are persecuted you still possess the fullness of the blessings that are in Christ Jesus. When you lose out on the blessings of this world, now you may you know, be a sinner and embezzle and then you go to jail, that's one thing. As Peter says, he distinguishes sins for which you know, results from your own sin and other results for being a Christian. But consistent with this life in Christ Jesus is a life where you may be persecuted and lose out on the things of the world. Because now we have gone beyond any focus on theocratic blessings. All the blessings are manifested in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And through the cross, I have died to the world and the world has died to me. That's what he says right after the verse I read in chapter 6. I have died to the world and the world has died to me. That is, he is seeing a connection between the world and the former history, periods in the history of redemption. He's been crucified to the world, and the world to him, he is now living in Christ. And of course, world is in all caps when we think of this evil age. And therefore, his life is in Christ. He may freely suffer persecution and yet not be ashamed. Yes. So are the Galatian Christians being persecuted? Yeah, and this is the question. I'm, what I'm doing is, I, this is a suggestion as a possibility. I'm not, I'm not so sure that they are being persecuted. And there have been people who have said, no, there is no persecution aspect here at all, because chapter 6, uh, verse 10, only implies that it's the messenger, you see. He won't be persecuted for the cross of Christ. I think it's more. I think it may be a desire not to be persecuted, but I don't know if they're being persecuted or not. Well, but, oh, suffered so many things in vain. I take that back. If you're saying that the Judaizers are trying to protect themselves from being persecuted, who's persecuting the Judaizers? Is it the Jews themselves? Yeah. So they want to escape from Jewish ethnic persecution. Right. I should correct myself here. If this interpretation is right, it says they have suffered so many things in vain, right? So there may be that they have suffered some sort of persecution. Is that persecution unto death, or is it just ostracization from the synagogue, or what kind of persecution are we talking about here? And uh, if that's true, then, yeah, follows, I think. Yes? 
I happen to be uh, reading Ritterboss from Galatians today. Okay. <clears throat> and he says that that word can, that is translated suffer can also be translated experience. Mm-hmm. Did you experience this much? Yes. And that's the other option. Did you experience all these things in vain in there would be experience all the, the life of the spirit in vain. Okay. So, so it would be, he's talking about the experience of the spirit, and then that would make, you know, from Rearboss's point of view, more sense of the context there too, right? So uh, I don't have a solid answer on this, but I, I'm, I throw these up, this things up as possibilities. Yes? There is, uh, in the southern Galatian churches, in Acts, there is evidence of Jews persecuted Paul and the churches there. Mm-hmm. So, at least we know that it happened some historically. Yes. So that may be what's being reflected on. Um, now, it may be that Ritterboss ends up being right on this particular verse. You know, uh, and then it might be that still the epistle implies something about persecution still, but just not in that verse. Okay. All right. Well, that was kind of an aside. Gives us an at- enough time to kind of take a break and uh, and uh, come back. Okay, we're back to the first page of your outline, so uh, no longer looking at that group of words there at the back. And uh, what I'd like us to do uh, is just, again, think about, before we look at the, we're going to look at some quotes from the Old Testament. Before we do that, think about how Paul answers these questions, these series of questions in 2 to 5, He says in verse 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, making a quote. Therefore, it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So we're going to take uh, a brief look at the quotations in their context that Paul uh, goes to here. And what I'm going to suggest to you as an overall arching thing is 
I'm going to suggest that these quotations indicate this relative contrast between the older era in the history of redemption and the fullness of times that has come in Christ. What we've been talking about here, I believe Paul illustrates uh, with these quotations. Uh, and I illustrate is really a weak word because in reality he's trying to get us to go back and see uh, our union with the previous history of redemption now come to its fullness in Jesus Christ. Okay, And so back to Abraham, and then back to uh, contrast the law and bringing us up to the prophetic era. So looking at this first quotation, uh, Genesis 15, verses 5 to 7. Let's go back there. Even so, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And we're back to Genesis 15, verses 5 to 7. Someone read that for us. Now, just prior to these verses, we have some verses where Abraham is talking about, is he going to have an heir? And verse 2, you can say, O Lord, what will thou give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then we see an offspring in verse 3, and then again in verse 4, we see an heir. We have a repetition of the word heir here, uh, at least a couple times in verse 4. Will not be, this man will not be your heir, but the one who comes forth from your body. He will be your heir. Okay. Now, I think this is part of the reason that Paul looks back to this quotation, because he's going to use it to prove that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Sons who are heirs, you see. And... So here, the question in this text in Genesis is, who is going to be your heir? And then he speaks, then God speaks forth to him this promise. Look to the stars. So will your descendants be, okay? You will have all of these children, right? Sons of Abraham. And then he believed the Lord and reckoned to him his righteousness. And then he says... I will give you the land. So what is the promise that he believes, you see, that is reckoned to him as righteousness? That he will have an heir? Ultimately, who is the heir? Christ Christ is the heir. And Paul will follow this up in chapter 3, verse 16. Okay, where he speaks about the seed to the, whom the promise is made, who is to Christ. So by the fact that he does that, he's actually drawing us back to this story. 
And he wants to see, wants us to see that we are the fulfillment of that promise in Christ Jesus. That we are sons of God in Christ Jesus and therefore heirs. We are the ones who participate in the fullness of the times as heirs of this new inheritance. It is not simply that God promised Abraham a land, but that land looked beyond itself to the inheritance that was to come. And that's what we possess as sons and heirs in Christ. And so those who are of faith are heirs in Abraham. And that's what he believes to count it to him as righteousness. And it will also be to us justified in Christ in righteousness by faith, not by works. Well, let's look. um, I want you to look now before we look at another quotation. I'd like you to look at the last page of your handout. Um, and first of all, I want you to look at this possible chiasm on the bottom. People have done some structural work on this uh, text. And one suggestion is this chiasm on the bottom, which has these citations. Okay, And first you would see in the B that it's those of faith who are blessed with Abraham and then B prime down at the bottom, you have Abraham blessed in the Gentile blessing to the Gentiles. Then you would have C and C prime, and the formatting got mixed up here. I'm sorry. Those who are the works of the law are cursed. Uh, with C prime, Christ redeemed us from the curse. And then another quote from Deuteronomy 21:23 below. Uh, then your D's, no one is justified by the law. The law is not of faith. D prime, and in the middle you have a quote from Habakkuk: The just shall live by faith. That's one suggested structure. There's another one that's not quite a chiasm, but it also puts the Habakkuk quote very much in the center. And whether or not there's a proper chiasm here, I think you'll notice by looking at the maps that I've drawn here for you, if you look at verse 10, you'll see does these things at the bottom. Does these things down below on verse 10 on the map 2 above here. And then in 12, does these things. It's by the works of the law. He who does these things. Again, a bracket here for what's going to be the quotation of Habakkuk in verse 11, centering us on the Habakkuk quote. So it may be that it's interesting what we have here is we have a quote, uh, a couple quotes uh, from Genesis, and then we'll have a quote from Deuteronomy, and uh, another quote from Deuteronomy on the other side, and then we'll have in the middle of that a quote from Habakkuk and a quote from Leviticus. So maybe you can draw more out of that than I've been able to see, Uh, but it may be that you have a convergence on the prophetic promise. So if that is the case... These these other quotations are leading us up to the prophetic promise of Habakkuk chapter 2, which is now fulfilled in Christ Jesus. 
And so then the Genesis quote that we've seen, that we've already read, where you're going to be an heir, and Abraham is justified in looking for his heirs, actually Habakkuk is the one who will then speak of the future age in which the just shall live by faith in the fullness of the times in a greater and fuller way, which I will argue when we get to Habakkuk. Anyways, all of this, I'm going to suggest to you, is converging, at least, on the New Testament economy. Okay, And if, if the quotation from Habakkuk or the quotation from Habakkuk and its contrast to Leviticus 18.5 is central, then this would emphasize, again, everything flowing up to the fullness of the times. Right. So, first of all, we have this aspect of error that we've looked at. And then the next passage that we have is uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And now we're on the second, uh, well, no, let's see, that is Genesis 12, verse 3. Someone want to read that for us? I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, good. Now, there you have the blessing as opposed to the curse. And if you were to turn to the last page of this handout, this map again, map two, you will see on your far right-hand column, you will see all kinds of blessing and curse. You will see blessing in the far right-hand column, blessing, and then blessing again. And then if you go way to the farther to the bottom, verse 14, you'll see blessing. In between that, you have curse, curse, curse all, curse, curse all, curse, cursed. Okay? So you have the blessing as opposed to the curse. And here Paul is looking at Genesis 12, 3, and here suggesting that all the nations will be blessed in you. You see? That's coming to its fullness when and how? In Christ. At this time in the history of redemption, in the fullness of the times. Blessed in him. A promise to all nations. Okay. So again, just, just to underscore this connection between the previous history of redemption and these promises to this coming of the kingdom. All right? Now, now when we come to the next set of quotes, these quotes are found in Galatians Chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. You'll notice that you have a quote from the law and a quote from the law, and in between is the quote from the prophet, Habakkuk. Okay? So again, centering on a Habakkuk. And then, as I said before, therefore, a quote of doing the law and a quote of doing the law, and in the middle is the Habakkuk quote. Okay? So we're going to have this contrast. Paul is now going to be making a strong contrast between works of the law and the arrival of the great grace that's coming in its fullness at the end of the ages. And the first of these quotes 
is from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Through, and I would say we could look up through 28, 8. But... Somebody want to read for us 27, 26 through 28, 8. Deuteronomy. Okay, please. Through 28, 8? Yeah, through 28, 8. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now, it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your breasts, and the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns, and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Okay. Um, now, if you look at this quotation, you see, it's, it's talking, it's verse 26, Cursed is he who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And then you see all these blessings as opposed to curses, Right? Blessings as opposed to curses that follow in the land. All right? Um, and what I'm going to suggest to you here is that when we look at these two passages that deal with the law, the Deuteronomy 27 text and the Leviticus 18.5 text, is we're going to see one way in which God provisionally manifests the promises given to Abraham in the land of Israel. All right, so we had those promises given to Abraham there uh, that we've looked at, and now we see how they, if you will, are provisionally fulfilled through the law. So that blessed will you be to the degree that you're obedient to the Lord, to that degree you will be blessed in the land. To the degree that you are disobedient, to that degree you will be cursed in the land and cast out from the land. And we're going to find something similar when we get to Leviticus 18.5. The degree that you're obedient to the law, you're going to have life in the land. The degree that you're disobedient, you'll be cursed. Okay. And then what Paul's going to do is when he makes the quote from Habakkuk in between those two notes of the theocracy, he's going to say, in effect, look, now it is... The just will live by faith. The full righteousness of God and the full eternal inheritance comes by faith. 
This situation in the theocracy is bankrupt. It leaves with curse and destruction. It leaves with Israel in the exile. And now Habakkuk, at least seeing that the curses of the law are uh, a part of what is ultimately coming on the people of God in the land, he looks ahead to that age when the just shall live by faith, when the new age in the fullness of the times will come in Christ. So, you see, my suggestion is here, you've got Paul bringing, speaking of the promises of the old and how were the fulfillment of those, and then saying, look, here, yes, God provisionally manifests this in the land, in Deuteronomy 27, in Leviticus 18.5. We've got that theocratic manifestation of those blessings, but that is not the final fulfillment of those promises made to Abraham. Habakkuk tells us otherwise. And we are recipients in Christ Jesus of the, the promises made in the prophets, such as Habakkuk. Okay? So, when we look at uh, Leviticus 18.5... We find something similar. We find the blessings promised for obedience. Uh, let's take a look at Levitic, uh, Leviticus 18.5. Someone want to just. Read for us, um, I'll read verse 5, and then I'm going to ask somebody to read for us uh, in a minute something. Well, somebody read for us verses 1 to 5, if you would. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where I am bringing you. You do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Okay. So keep my commands and my laws. The man who does them will live by them. Okay. Uh, this is a promise, I'm going to suggest to you, of the degree that the one who does this, to the degree they will have life in the land. That's an aspect of this promise. Uh, it's, it is not simply that the one who does these things shall live in them. That is certainly true. The one who does these things shall live in them. But that by itself is kind of a tautology. The one who does these things, well, obviously does live in them. It's more than that. The one who does these things shall have life by them. Right? As opposed to death. And you can see this follows off a blessing that God is giving. He's calling his people, his people there in the first few verses, who they are. And now he's giving them a blessing. And I believe that this is further substantiated when you get to the end of the chapter, when you look at verses 24 to 30. 
Because there you have the opposite. You have the Canaanites being cut off, okay, for disobedience. So uh, I'll just read a little bit of that. Verse 24, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all of these things the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have visited its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who, is, who sojourns among you. Okay, so that you are to do my statutes brings us back to Leviticus 18.5. The one who does these things shall live by them. Here you have the contrast. You have the Canaanites defiling, being defiled and being cast out of that land. So this is a land which you can defile, okay? And you can be cast out. The one who is disobedient will have not the blessing of life in the land, just like the Canaanites who were cast out because they defiled, they defiled this holy place. And uh, just a little background for how this works, uh, Leviticus 10.10 has this language of the holy and the common, the clean and unclean. You are to make a distinction between them. And this, this land is being looked at as a holy land, a land where God is especially present. All right? And that is why the defiled are cast out, because it's like God has a special tabernacle presence there. All right? And those defiled things are cast out from that presence. You have um, this kind of language of God's presence used there in Leviticus 23, 2-5. Uh, God is present in the land. In other words, this the scheme that I'm suggesting to you, the man who does these things shall live by them, okay, and have life by them, this in some respects, okay, is grounded in the grace of God and the presence of God in the land, okay? So it is in relative contrast to the new order of things in Christ. So if you look, for instance, at Leviticus 23, 2-5, you have that aspect of God's presence in the land. Uh, well, maybe you're good. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times for which you proclaim as a holy convocation my appointed times in this sense. For six days, you know what, I may have the wrong passage down here. So, I have the wrong passage. I don't know which passage it is right now. So I apologize for that. But you can press me on that for a text where we do have... Uh, God's presence in the land of Canaan. And I would suggest to you, even from Leviticus 18, that we can see that because we see that the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Okay, Because he is the Lord their God. He is their God. Therefore, the one who does these things shall live by them. How is he their God? By grace? Or by works? By grace. 
Okay? So he is their God by grace. His presence is there by grace. And it is because of his presence there, I would argue, that this is a holy place. And those who are disobedient, therefore, ultimately are cursed and cut off for defiling the land. Those who are obedient, to that degree, they are blessed in this holy place. And Paul is looking back on that then and saying, the law is not of faith to this degree, to the degree that it promises life as opposed to curse in this land. To that degree, it is not of faith. Now the greater age of faith has come in the new covenant. The greater age of faith has come, which which was spoken of to Habakkuk the prophet. That's an age in which you shall not look to the things that are seen in any respect. Was Israel to some degree looking to the things that are seen in their blessings in the land? When they're promised life in the land to the degree that they're obedient, are they not going to receive visible blessings in that land that to some degree they can see and have as confirmation of their life in their covenant Lord? Yes, to some degree, yes. Okay. And so when those blessings are not there, to some degree there is a despair. To some degree, faith wanes, as it does with Hezekiah. So, but in the new, you're going to have a situation in which the people of God are going beyond that, in which their blessings are heavenly and eternal in all respects, and therefore they're going to have the fullness of faith laying hold of that which is unseen and that which is eternal. Okay. And I think that's what we find in Habakkuk. So let's look at that quote from Habakkuk, and then um, we'll move on. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Anybody have that? See, see, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Good. See, the proud one, he is, he is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Now, you see, behind, back behind this, okay, you have a situation in which the proud are there in the land, and here we have Israel or uh, Judah being punished for her sins by the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk is looking forward to a new day, a new day of salvation. And he says in verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. This is a vision of the coming salvation, you see. And then he says, 
Behold, for the proud man his soul is not right within, but the righteous will live by faith. So the righteous in the land now will live by faith that God will deliver his people, that God will bring a final and eternal deliverance. And then the prophet manifests what that faith is looking forward to when you come to the end of this book. So if you look at chapter 3, uh, verses 17 to 19... You see what is manifest. Somebody want to read that for us? Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign law, Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Okay. Now, notice, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit in the stall, and the olive tree should fail, I will trust in the Lord, Right? I will exalt in the Lord. Now, if you are in the land of Israel, in the theocratic setting, you're looking for, to some degree, to the promises of Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy, uh, well, 28 mainly, off of 28.7. If you're looking for those promises as a sign of God's favor, are you looking to some degree to expect the fig tree to blossom? Are you not? You're expecting those blessings, aren't you? And you're thinking there's cattle going to be in the stalls, right? But now you have a situation where all those things don't exist. Though there be suffering in the loss of all things, yet I will exalt in the Lord. You are looking to a situation in which all your blessings have become eternal ones in the heavenly places, right? That's the day that... Habakkuk is predicting and looking forward to, you see. The faith that he is speaking of in 2.4 is looking for that promised day when these things would be fulfilled. You see. And so, when Paul picks that up in Galatians, he says, you see, it's not, the law is not of faith to the degree, you see, that it promises those blessings in the land to which you look But the righteous in this new age live by faith, faith in the things that are unseen and eternal. And by doing that, you have received the fullness of the promised blessings to Abraham. The promised blessings to Abraham was not some plot of ground, ultimately, in this world. That was only a foretaste of the promises to Abraham. You have participated in the fullness, in the reality It's those who are of faith in the full sense of the word in the new age that are the sons of Abraham and participate in the fullness of the blessings promised to Abraham. And that is you in Christ Jesus so that you see all of these things come to fullness in him. 
He is ultimately the one to whom these promises are made. He is the one who bears this curse that is represented in the law, eschatologically, eternally, so that he can reverse that and bring an eternal, everlasting blessing in the heavenly places. It all hinges on him. He is the center of this redemptive history that Paul is talking about. And you are in him, now heirs of the end of the ages. So when we go back to Galatians, we can see Paul's discussion of these matters. But before we do that, any questions or comments on what I've said so far? Or the quotes? No? Okay. Let's look at Galatians then. Back in Galatians 3. And let's summarize as we look at the verses. Okay, verse 6. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. We have a quote. And then it says, Therefore all who believe are of faith are sons. Then there's another quote from Abraham with a conclusion in verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And then he goes through the quotes we've just looked at. As many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. And for it is written, cursed does not him who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And you see, I'm suggesting to you in some respects, cursed are all those of the law. Now, some of your translations might say those who rely on the law, okay? But it's broader than that. It's all those who are of the works of the law, okay? And it can apply in special cases to different individuals, some who rely on the work of the law as well. But here it's those who are of the works of the law are under a curse. And cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. So this ultimate justification that is in Christ is not by works of the law. It did not come through Israel's obedience to the law and keeping the legal requirements of the law, but it comes through Christ. For the just... Those who are truly justified in the full sense of the word live by faith in the arrival of the blessings of the age to come in Christ Jesus. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, who practices them shall live by them, you see. Again, I'm suggesting in that you can interpret it in this relative respect they who, who does these things live by them, live have that life by them, but no, the life that we're promised now is the eschatological life, the eternal life. Now I want you to notice, before we look at 13 and, and the centering of the curse of Christ, because this is what we want to we see how all this is transitioned and come in Christ. Look at how these last two verses that are quoted have a word in them that are, is similar. Okay? The Habakkuk quote says, The righteous man shall live by faith. And then, verse 12, He who practices them shall live by them. What word is repeated there? Live. Okay? 
the righteous live by faith. Is this just ultimately the righteous live by faith? Is this just temporal life? No. This is eternal life, is it not? And this is the life that's in Christ. What does this remind you of in chapter 2? The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, right? The life I live, the eternal life that I possess, the eternal life now that I possess in the Spirit. Well, let's look at verse 13 and this great transition that occurs. Okay. Great transition occurring in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, let's take a look at that quotation. Deuteronomy 21-23. And uh, I would like somebody to read for us verses 22-23. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and then he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Okay. Now, it's interesting that Paul quotes this particular passage. Because it's cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, and why do you take the body down on the same day and bury him? He who is hanged is what? Cursed. Accursed of God, so that you knew not Defile the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Hmm, has Paul chosen this verse partially because it reflects on that? And that he might think of the defiling character of the land and it in relationship to the inheritance? Hmm, perhaps. You certainly have a story that I, I'm not going to call redemptive, but you have a this perhaps illustrated in the sons of Saul who are killed, and when they are, uh, God takes a curse away from the land. So there's more to this than just a regular passing stray comment here. And since Paul has connected this curse to the curse of the law, and the other quotes, especially what I see in Leviticus, the connection between defiling land and 
the curse versus the blessing, is there some sense here, you see, that Paul is drawing this cursedness of the cross in its relationship to the inheritance. Clearly what he's doing is, at least if we relate these passages together, he's talked about the curse earlier that separated God's people from the fullness of the inheritance in the land. And he is now saying that that curse has been borne by Christ. Okay. You know, that curse which was in the land is keeping the fullness of the blessing of the inheritance of the end of the ages of arriving to the people of God. Now what happens when that curse is done away with? The fullness of the blessing of the age to come has arrived for the people of God, right? If you take away that curse, which was keeping that fullness of blessing from coming, then you bring the fullness of blessedness. And Christ bears that curse. And that explains why verse 14 follows in chapter 3 of Galatians. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, all this happens, and he catches up the blessing of Abraham... You see, we said the blessing of Abraham is fulfilled now. The blessing of Abraham as a result might come. You see, the curse is laid on him eternally, and the opposite is the blessing of Abraham. If there was curse still in the land, which kept the fullness of blessing from coming, now that's done away with so that the fullness of blessing does come in Christ Jesus so that now we receive the fullness of the promised spirit by faith. Well, why the blessing of the spirit? Why the blessing of the spirit? Well, I would suggest to you it's because, partially, because it's the spirit's presence in that land that is, in fact, the blessing that is there is because of the presence of the Spirit in the land. If you want to see this, you can look at the Song of Moses where uh, they sing toward going toward the tabernacle, land of the Lord, the place where the Lord is present. So the Spirit is present in the land, but there is still the curse upon the land. So the fullness of the blessing of the Spirit has not come. Because the curse still abides. And what happens when you take away that curse? Then the fullness of the blessing can come, right? Fullness of the blessing comes once that curse is done away with. And so, it makes sense that Paul says, you see, that once Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, he does that in order that the fullness blessing of the Spirit might come in Christ Jesus. And we receive that promise of the Spirit. What, by works? No, by faith. In fact, we receive it in the fullness of faith. 
That blessing isn't even mediated. Blessing as opposed to curse, that is, is not mediated through our sanctified obedience, as Israel's was visibly in the land. It comes purely by that curse being born by Christ himself, taking away that curse, bringing in himself, in his resurrection, the fullness of the Spirit to his people. You see, he, having become a curse, then receives the opposite, which is the fullness of the blessing promised to Abraham. He receives the fullness of the Spirit in his resurrection so that now he may grant others life in himself so that in Christ we receive the fullness of the Spirit through faith in him, all that he has done alone, not by works in any respect. And so you see, this text brings us to the drama of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and him being the pivot of redemptive history, and our life in him being that life which is above all things. And I want you to notice how Paul uses his pronouns. He has come to talk about Christ having borne the curse for us in verse 13. That in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might that we might receive the promised blessing of the Spirit. That we, yes, Gentiles too, because the Gentiles... The curse that separated them from the inheritance of God is done away with for them too, is it not? We, Jew and Gentile, but we, we, remember how Paul was trying to draw the Galatian churches into the drama of the life of Christ? Remember how I suggested that earlier Paul was transformed by the Son of Man, the Son of God on the road to Damascus, and he was calling the Galatian churches to come back and to find life in Christ as they united themselves to his drama. And then in chapter 2, when he discusses how he goes to Jerusalem, he uses the preposition, the, the pronoun, me, 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 okay, as if this is what I did. Now, he expands that, when he addresses the Jews in chapter 2, we who are Jews and not Gentile sinners, then he speaks about I. I have been crucified with Christ. You see, again, the drama that he has entered into. I have been crucified with Christ, the rest of chapter 2. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he brings them in. But he brings them in by means of you, 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 Galatians. Who has bewitched you, you Galatians? But then by the end of this section, he has drawn them back into union with himself in Christ Jesus. We, Christ delivered us, bore the curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus, we might receive the promise of the blessing in Christ. 
Is he doing here what he's been promising all along to give them a gospel that is not of men or through men, but through Jesus Christ? And remember that gospel of men or through men made distinctions among men. Peter was going to distinguish himself from the, gen- from the Gentiles, right? And he's going to exalt himself because, hmm, following a gospel of men, not of the exaltation of Jesus. Now Paul has brought us all into the fullness of the exaltation of the Son of God so that we are united together in the blessing of his resurrection life in the Spirit so that we may boast in Christ Jesus and not in the flesh. And that you, therefore, all of you, who trust in Christ, you are significant as those to whom all these promises were made in him. They were made for you. Your whole life is in that whole previous history of redemption because you are in Christ Jesus. And you have come to the fullness of the blessed age that is in him who loved you and gave himself up for you. Well, any questions? Said we'd look a little bit more at this absolute contrast, but I haven't had time to develop that. Yes? I kind of hesitate to ask the question, but particular psalm always strikes me if it's difficult to sing, Psalm 144, mm-hmm. and uh, God speaks of that length. Uh, our sons and their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, and our daughters will be like pillars. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by ten thousands, and our fields, oxen will throw heavy loads. All of these seem to be the wonderful thing is we can sing it. Because you see, what happens as a result is we find our life identified with the whole history of redemption. Okay. We see that the blessing that God gave, which was, I mean, this blessing in the land is, is simply a foretaste of the heavenly blessing intruded into redemptive history, okay? So we see that that blessing that God gave in the land of Israel, that that was a foretaste of the blessedness of Christ. And therefore, we sing that psalm in the fullness of the times as those who find our blessedness in the inheritance above in Christ Jesus. We sing it you see, with Habakkuk and the prophets in mind. And yet at the same time, we see also ourselves in Christ insofar as we see that curse on the land, which is keeping the fullness of that inheritance from coming. We see two things. We see our own sin, right? Our own sin that if it were an end in itself, if this was the final answer, our own sin would keep God's blessing from coming, period. And yet, we find our life in Christ who bore that curse and has brought the fullness of the inheritance of God above. So he's brought the fullness of that blessing 
to us. Yeah. Is not in the land unless the people of God are in the land. Mm-hmm. So anytime the people of God are removed from the land, spirit leaves too. Okay, All right. So so the spirit departs even from the tabernacle, right? So uh, yeah. So it, it is God is present with His people, right? That is that is the primary thing, and He's He is present with His people, but also manifests that presence in the Ark of the Covenant by which he went before them into the land, right? Um, and then you have, of course, uh, the glory departing, right, uh, in exile. Um, so, and then the question is, you know, when's the glory going to return? But the glory that the prophets are looking for a return doesn't return, right? They weep at the, at the building of that temple. Now you see, even you, you see, as you look at some of the curses of the law, when you think about this, you look at the curses of the law, these curses remind you of your complete darkness in the Gentile world, being separated from the life of God entirely, so that when you see the curse upon the land, you see, in fact, what you deserve because of your sins. And you don't you see, oh, it's, it's not just that curse on the land, but it's the eternal, everlasting curse to which those curses point that were mine outside of Christ. And Christ bore those from me to bring me into the everlasting glory. And when you see, on the other hand, the great holy wars of the Old Testament... You see the progression of David's kingdom. You are seeing there a foretaste of the blessedness of the age to come manifesting itself, of the righteousness of the age to come more and more manifesting itself to the degree that that curse is turned aside. And you are seeing the gospel, therefore, revealed in Christ himself. And therefore, you look beyond those things to the greater age of Christ when Christ has destroyed principalities and powers and triumphed over them finally in the cross. Well, if there's no more questions, you're dismissed.